Have you ever felt a visceral attraction to a politician? There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. I am your voice. Ask yourself if they're really telling the truth. This is a secret innuendo being leaked out there about me. I was honestly concerned that he might lie about the nature of our meeting. This is Subliminally Correct, a bi-weekly podcast where we examine all the ways politicians and newsmakers are using psychological tactics to influence you every single day. And now, join myself, Taylor Sherman, certified hypnosis instructor and executive coach, along with my co-host, Alex Dobranek, political consultant and certified consulting hypnotist, on this episode of Subliminally Correct. And welcome to another episode of Subliminally Correct. What do we have up for today, Alex? Today on the show... We're reviewing a recent State of the Union address given by President Trump, and then following that, the Democratic response by Stacey Abrams. One of the things that you'll notice about this State of the Union speech is that it doesn't follow Trump's usual style, as we covered in the previous two-part episode called The Trump Show. This one is intended to be very grand, majestic, and thematic. To begin with today, we're going to listen to a clip of Trump beginning in a speech. You might compare this with other speeches given by politicians like Obama similar to the one we featured in episode 16, and see how different the speechwriting is and the themes that occur throughout. Now, before we get there, if you enjoy this type of content and you'd like to support the show, please support us by subscribing on Patreon, and you can find the link down in the show notes. So for as little as a cup of coffee, you're going to be able to ensure that this show continues operating and we keep putting out this great content. And now, let's go ahead and get to that first clip. We meet tonight at a moment of unlimited potential. As we begin a new Congress, I stand here ready to work with you to achieve historic breakthroughs for all Americans. Millions of our fellow citizens are watching us now gathered in this great chamber, hoping that we will govern not as two parties, but as one nation. The agenda I will lay out this evening is not a Republican agenda or a Democrat agenda. It's the agenda of the American people. All right. So here we hear Trump beginning in this very thematic type of style. Now, normally we've heard this style in again in similar episodes like Obama has done. But this time, Trump's speechwriters have really, you know, taken the cake. They have done something really amazing, which is that they have had him say all of these things that bring up this very large image of exactly of togetherness, of things that he wants to accomplish. And he's trying to give a message of togetherness and unity, which is very unusual for, you know, President Trump. He's usually going to be talking about something about, well, this, you know, uh, segment of people over here is not necessarily doing what we want them to do, and these people are, and so he's going to be having usually that very in-group and out-group, you know, ideas. 
But this time he starts talking about that togetherness, that unity. And it's kind of interesting how he's giving it at this point in the game. Now, State of the Unions are in general having more of these types of themes. And so we can attribute it partially to that. But I think we can also attribute it partially to the shutdown. We can also attribute it partially to what he sees as winning on the Democratic side, you know, of things that are happening. I mean, what do you think about that, Alex? Would you say that's a pretty good uh, theory of how things might be going down? <laughs> well, we're about to find out. Um, I think one of the interesting things that I notice here in his speech is that he's, while he's using that thematic language that you just talked about, trying to bring the two sides together, he's sort of telegraphing his real motivations and that he's really not trying to bring everybody together. You notice the way he emphasizes the word all when he says all Americans Mm. that right there is really I see it as coded language so that you know people who you know might be disenfranchised white Americans or men um, or you know whatever it might be it's sort of the rebuttal to um, a lot of uh, the like black lives matter sort of things or like women's issues not all men those kinds of things I sort of hear that emphasized there and think back to, oh, that's sort of a little bit of a dog whistle to certain groups of people who believe that, you know, the American government should not be serving minority groups, but instead try to, you know, lift all boats. And so that's that's really fascinating little piece of nugget of speech that he threw in there. Yeah, we hear him starting off here with these pacing statements so millions of our fellow citizens are watching us now you know that just sounds like something in the fireside address right it, it just sounds like something that's there now why is it that we associate that with something that's being very presidential or regal well it's because it's pacing so what they're doing is they're matching your current experience they're saying here is what is happening so not only is it millions you have this picture in your head of like all of these people millions you know can you even picture millions you know kind of like a a trump rally um can you even picture them you know actually there um and then our fellow citizens are watching us now well you know that's kind of hard to argue with because of course you have tv statistics and you know everything like that um but it's a pacing statement it's something in which we're saying hey we're all on the same page we're all doing the same thing and because of that it plays up that very um together nature of things that that sense of everything you know being uh being together and then he goes on and he he starts to talk about you know these these ideas of things coming together so not as two parties but as one nation and this is a play on words, right? This is using numbers, something called ordinals, two parties, one nation. And there's lots of symbolism in that idea of two becoming one. So, for example, think about marriage, right? Two becoming one. Um, each individual person becoming now one couple. It could be the north versus the south. Now we're one nation. Okay, it could be the brain. It could be the body. It could be a number of different things that could be associated to that, that whole idea of two and one. And so this becomes a nice little speech device that um, speechwriters can use to be able to make the message sound that much more persuasive. And then he does it again, where he talks about not a Republican agenda, not a, 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 Demo- a uh, Democrat agenda, 
but the agenda of the American people, which is again to becoming one, this not this side, not that side, but both sides. But who specifically are these people? And so he's assuming rapport, basically. He's assuming that he represents our interests and that he represents the interests of the American people. What does he mean, the agenda of the American people? And I'd like to suggest to you that there is no one agenda of the American people. That doesn't really exist. Like you can look back and say, well, there are things that we all would have in common, like we you know, support each other as a nation. We do have this kind of in-group, out-group thing. Hey, we're one nation and we want to protect our nation and our values and things of that, you know, of that matter. But when you talk about an agenda, it refers to something ongoing and doesn't mean policy decisions about that. You see, that's where it's very vague and where he's going to use the vagueness of that to make a much more persuasive idea moving forward. Yeah, that last point there about the Republican Democratic agenda um, it, you know, it's really reminiscent of President Obama's uh, 2000, uh, was it 2004 um, Democratic Convention speech. You can, if you listen to the intro today, um, you should have heard him give this line, but a little bit different. You know, there's no, it's not a red America, blue America. This is the United States of America. He's using, he's sort of almost borrowing that when changing the words ever so slightly um, to be the exact same thing. And I just kind of find it, oh, was that intentional? Was he tr- sort of trying to call back to Obama there? Or was he coming up with this on his own and thinking that, you know, this is original? I, I think as speechwriters, you know, they look at that and they go, well, Obama uses it. Now Trump should use it. And I, I do think that they have in this speech been looking at what some of the Democrats, particularly progressives, have been using to get some traction. And they've been taking the words and the language and now they're putting it in a Trump speech, you know, as if this entire time what he's really been talking about is togetherness, you know, as as if that's been his platform the entire time. (laughs) Now, in this next part here, you're going to hear some more of this alliteration. He's going to be talking about the majesty of America's mission. This year, America will recognize two important anniversaries that show us the majesty of America's mission and the power of American pride. In June, we mark 75 years since the start of what General Dwight D. Eisenhower called the Great Crusade, the Allied liberation of Europe in World War II. On D-Day, June 6, 1944, 15,000 young American men jumped from the sky and 60,000 more stormed in from the sea to save our civilization from tyranny. Here with us tonight are three of those incredible heroes. All right, so here we hear Trump starting to get into this idea of an alliteration, right? So the majesty of America's mission and the power of American pride. And when we have words like that that are alliterative, what happens is that a person's brain actually takes those those ideas, and because it's kind of similar to rhyming, it goes into the mind a little bit more. It, it gets affected by, by their brain a little bit more. 
And they don't really question, okay, what exactly are they saying there? You know, the majesty of the mission, the power of the pride, but that's all unspecified. What does exactly it mean, power? Okay, we can, you know, and, and what does the pride mean, right? What what are we talking about there? Well, people can listen to that and they can say, I know exactly what he's talking about because I have a feeling of pride and I feel like America does have a mission. But in much the same way that I was just talking about the agenda being a specific ongoing action, what exactly is the mission? And, you know, couldn't that be defined differently with every administration, right? America's mission is defined differently depending on who it is that's in office. You know, some people would say, hey, America is the policeman of the world. We need to go and, you know, basically take our strong force and be able to use it to um, make sure that everyone else is okay. Others would say, hey, our really mission is to take care of what's what's here. Maybe others would say our mission is to defend our borders and to ensure that we aren't attacked. What I'm saying is that it's a little bit different depending on who you ask. And what he's doing through this statement is that he's really talking to his base. So majesty is another way of saying that it's blessed by God. And, you know, power of American pride is another way of going back to those history books. Now, one of the ways he goes back to the history book here is by talking about World War II and D-Day. And again, none of this is really unexpected, given that it's a State of the Union speech. But just hear how this does not fit Donald Trump's usual speaking style. (laughs) I mean, I hear him saying things like this, and it's almost like I'm listening to Winston Churchill, right? You know, they jumped from the sky and they stormed in from the sea to save our civilization from tyranny. It's literally taken out of, you know, a Winston Churchill type of speech, and it's not something in which is is done. But the reason he references this is that when you reference something like World War II, it really brings those kind of warm fuzzies to people because it's something that every leader can lay claim to in, in the sense that, hey, they're representing this long lineage of history. And it's really hard to argue with history, especially positive history, because it gets everyone on the same page. And this is another pacing statement because any American really must appreciate it based on the fact that they are an American and they've gone through American you know, schools. Right. Or at least they grew up here. Right. So what is happening here, and I find this really interesting, that use of that alliteration, though, um, that you know, invoked sort of that childhood storybook mentality. And then what does he do? He dives right into a story about World War II and D-Day of people jumping from the sky and storming from the sea. What he's doing is, you know, allowing all this stuff to happen where it's, you know, storybook alliteration followed by the actual story that he's trying to tell primes them to sort of uh, get into that mode where everything that he's telling you is true and happening right then and right there. Definitely. Now, in this next clip that we're going to be listening to, Donald Trump's going to start talking about his standards. And what kind of standards exactly is he talking about? Well, he's going to be referencing a particular type of standard that actually is the same phrase that Stacey Abrams is going to use in her Democratic response. It's just they're talking about different things. So let's take a listen to this one. Now we must step boldly and bravely into the next chapter of this great American adventure. 
And we must create a new standard of living for the 21st century. An amazing quality of life for all of our citizens is within reach. We can make our community safer, our family stronger, our culture richer, our faith deeper, and our middle class bigger and more prosperous than ever before. But we must reject the politics of revenge, resistance, and retribution, and embrace the boundless potential of cooperation, compromise, and the common good. Together, we can break decades of political stalemate. We can bridge old divisions, heal old wounds, build new coalitions, forge new solutions, and unlock the extraordinary promise of America's future. The decision is ours to make. We must choose between greatness or gridlock, results or resistance, Vision or vengeance, incredible progress or pointless destruction. Tonight, I ask you to choose greatness. So what I see here is Trump begins this entire speech talking about unity and talking about coming together. And it's not a red America. It's not a blue America. All of that. But then what does he do? He dives into this coming together language sort of with this undertone of division to it in and of itself and it's really interesting he talks about you know we must reject the politics of revenge resistance and retribution and embrace the boundless potential of cooperation compromise and common good well what what is sort of the subtext of that right is that maybe all of this contentious stuff between the Republicans and the Democrats during the shutdown might still be weighing on his mind. And he's thinking about the resistance being a lot of the Democrats' motto right there. Um, And saying that you can choose between the Democrats, which are revenge, resistance, and retribution, or we can cooperate, compromise, for the common good of building the wall and doing everything that I'm telling you to do for the common good. And so it's, I don't know, that's sort of what I read into it. And I, I, I sort of see that subtext playing throughout this speech, you know, with the facade of working together and, and um, cooperating with the undertones of, you know, you can choose this way, you can choose that way. One way is the Democrats' way, the other way is the Republicans' way. Right. And remember, that's the moment actually in this speech where Nancy Pelosi stands up and she starts clapping at Trump, you know, and kind of giving him that look like, you go ahead and, and do that because she's implying that he needs to do what he's saying, you know, especially as, in regards to the shutdown. 
And so she takes that in one way, of course. He's trying to say it in another way, and that's a great example of how these types of words, this type of languaging that's very broad, can be interpreted in multiple ways. Now, of course, when his speechwriters wrote this, they had no intention of giving Pelosi or anyone else anything to go off of, right? And yet she was able to find a lot, actually, in this speech that she could look at it and smile and smirk at because what she's saying is, hey, this guy's a hypocrite. He's not really doing what it is that he's actually saying. So when he talks about rejecting the politics of revenge, she's saying, hey, well, that's what you're you're actually doing. So let's break down some of the different language ideas that are happening here within this segment. So when he's talking about here about this idea of making our communities safer, families stronger, culture richer. Remember that whole noun verb thing that I've been talking about? Actually, I talked about in the last episode. This is what he's doing here. Making our faith deeper, our middle class bigger and more prosperous than ever before. These are all comparative deletions, meaning they're comparisons, but without the standard of what it's being compared that you know has been deleted. And one of the things that is true about this is that he only has to make, really, for him to say that he did all of this, he only has to make one little small improvement or even just something that he's done that he can frame as an improvement in all of these areas in order to just point to it and say, hey, we succeeded at that thing. So, for example, let's say that he builds his wall or his fence or whatever it's going to be. And then he claims, based on the fact that he got that, that the communities are safer, just the same way he did with the um, uh, barrier that was built in El Paso, right? He says it's safer. A lot of people had a challenge with that, the fact checkers. Um, You know, maybe he does away with some progressive ideas. And then he says, well, because we did that, that that's made families and faith better. Maybe, um, you know, someone goes and uh, visit some kids. Well, then our culture is richer. And so what is he really talking about here? Well, we don't hear him nailing himself down any specific policy decision. Instead, he's just talking about, in general, here are the categories. But aren't these the same categories that the Democrats might also agree to? Um, is he saying anything unique here? Not really. And then in this part where he's talking about forging new solutions, unlocking the extraordinary promise of America's future, the decision is ours to make. And then he goes into this idea. We must choose between this or that, this or that. That's what's called an exclusive or. You've got two choices, but you can only go one or the other. Hey, would you like to pay by cash or check? Would you like to sit down or stand up, right? It's only one or two choices. The third one would be laying down, for example. You know, you only have one or two choices that are being given there. And when you do it with these big words, well, that makes it so that all of a sudden, you know, what are we really choosing against? Well, just basically good and evil. So this technique is really simple. All you have to do to do this is just pick two words that contrast with each other, but have the same first letter and roughly the same number of syllables and which are both unspecified to the degree to which they'll be applied, and you just put them together. Now, one thing that's interesting about this is that I think to some degree that he might be hemming himself in with these statements because he's implying that there is a right and a wrong. 
And in many cases, he might find himself to be in the wrong since that's, you know, actually his M.O. of how he's of how he's operating, you know, greatness or gridlock. What does it mean? Results or resistance, vision or vengeance, progress or destruction. And it's like, you know, how is this going to be defined? Well, he's he's going to define it based, of course, on what you know the other party, uh, the other party does. And so we've covered this tactic before. Um, I think one of our earlier episodes, we talked about how, you know, this framing of, of one or the other gives the illusion of choice. But when in reality, you're presenting the only two options. So it's like if you were to ask a child, do you want to clean your room before or after dinner? Well, the child no longer has, you know, a decision to make anymore about whether to clean the room or not. It's going to clean his room. It's just going to be before or after dinner. What he's doing here is he's framing um, those two decisions as the only ones. Now, there are, there's a spectrum of a thousand different outcomes. It doesn't necessarily have to be greatness. It doesn't necessarily have to be gridlock. But he, he, like Taylor said, he's right there framing it as those are the only choices. But not only that, think about how hyperbolic these are right here. We've got greatness or gridlock. Now, one of these is amazing and incredible and the best thing ever. And which one is he for? Of course, the greatness. Now, who is against Trump? Who is opposed to his policies? The Democrats. They must be for the gridlock. Same thing for results, which Trump claims that he has plenty of results and wants to achieve results. But the, Repub- the Democrats who are against him, they're the party of resistance, which, again, is that Democratic um, catchword that's been so, um, so well associated with Democrats so far. And so he does that, you know, uh, over and over and over again. Again, that subtext of division, while, you know, at face value, if we're going by the written words of the speech, it's so unifying. And as he's doing this unification and division at the same time, of course, he's setting up what's going to happen in the next part of his speech. Now, in the next part here, he's actually talking about how the economy has grown and all of the various you know, ways in which it has, uh, it has happened. So let's go ahead and listen to this next clip where he's going to be talking about all of the ways that the American economy has grown and, of course, that it's because of him. Let's take a listen. The U.S. economy is growing almost twice as fast today as when I took office. And we are considered far and away the hottest economy anywhere in the world, not even close. (laughs) Unemployment has reached the lowest rate in over half a century. African-American, Hispanic-American, and Asian-American unemployment have all reached their lowest levels ever recorded. (laughs) 
Unemployment for Americans with disabilities has also reached an all-time low. More people are working now than at any time in the history of our country. 157 million people at work. We passed a massive tax cut for working families and doubled the child tax credit. Boy, where do we even begin with this one? <laughs> I guess it's not really persuasion if you just if you just say things. Right. And the thing is, like now he's going into his statistics of how he is making his dream come true, right? The American dream, the inspiration that he just laid out. And you should have seen Mike Pence sitting there in the back <laughs> when he went through all these statistics. I mean, the guy was freaking glowing. Um, so for his base, this is really critical to him fulfilling his campaign campaign promises to make America great again, because they can point at the economy and they can say, wait a second, based on this, that means that Trump is a good president. Look how well the jobs are doing. Of course, Trump's good. Look how great everything's going. That means that his tax cut plan was was good. But of course, the economy growing doesn't mean that it's because of Trump, but you know, presidents love to take credit for that. They love to come up with the economic statistics. And it's almost as though, you know, his speechwriters or his team really sat in a room and said, let's find every single thing that we can say is great about the economy. And you're going to put that in your speech as evidence that your policies are working. Um, does that really, you know, follow through? Probably not, but that's what they're doing. Right. Nobody's going to be going through this whole checklist being like, yep, that's true. Nope, that's wrong. Yep, that's true. It's just not going to happen. If you already support the president, you're going to be hearing these things. You're going to be letting these things sink in and go through, you know, uh, almost like pacing. If you don't like the president, you might be like, nope, that's all false and maybe tuning him out. But it's through the series of repetition he often repeats these statistics over and over and over again. Your mind, if you're maybe a more moderate person, might have heard him claim these things over and over and over again. Look at your bank account and be like, oh, yeah, you know, things are a little bit better for me. And then, you know, start attributing some of this stuff to Trump. So, you know, it's really it's, it's sort of fascinating how he uses that repetition um, to, to sort of hammer in his message and, and make it seem like he's doing a lot more than he actually is. Uh, and make no mistake that his statistics here are a little bit exaggerated, right? So someone did a fact check, for example, on one of his numbers of the number of people, you know, that are working and they found that it was off by like 25%, right? I mean, and, and you know, it's kind of hard to fabricate you know, really simple statistics, like some statistics, you can kind of play with them and how do you measure them and, you know, that type of thing. But when you just have this is true or this isn't true and there's really no other way to, to swing it, um, that's that's kind of tricky to to, uh, you know, make make it different. Now, in this next clip here, Trump is going to be going on the attack because he's done his inspirational stuff. He's talked about how he has made the economy better. He's talked about all of the things that his 
campaign has done right. So basically saying, hey, here we are. We're all unified as Americans. We can agree on the on the same stuff. And then he goes into and look at how great I am because of all of the economy. Now, let me tell you about who is the demon or the evil one in this scenario. And, well, we can just guess who it is that he's attacking, but let's listen to this next clip. And this is actually one of the most persuasive parts of the entire speech, where he's starting to really go after and uh, really protect himself in the long run. So let's take a listen here. We eliminated the very unpopular Obamacare individual mandate penalty. And you give critically ill patients access to life-saving cures, we passed, very importantly, right to try. My administration has cut more regulations in a short period of time than any other administration during its entire tenure. Companies are coming back to our country in large numbers thanks to our historic reductions in taxes and regulations. An economic miracle is taking place in the United States, and the only thing that can stop it are foolish wars, politics, or ridiculous partisan investigations. If there is going to be peace and legislation, there cannot be war and investigation. It just doesn't work that way. Boy. Well, now he's really going on the attack. This is really interesting right here because he's really tying it all together here. He's taking his alliteration, again, back to sort of that storybook uh, mentality back to when you were a child and your mother was reading a story to you, you know, bringing that in and then throws in all this imagery, peace and legislation or war and investigation. And you can, you can actually see Nancy Pelosi's face in the back there, just, you know, shaking her head and going like, no way, as she almost couldn't believe that he said this. But if you are already inclined to you know, support the president, or maybe you're a moderate, maybe you're in between, and you're thinking like a lot of Americans do, that, man, I wish, the, I wish they could just get things done. I wish they could just do something to help us. You might be a little bit more inclined to be like, yeah, I want that piece. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I'm more drawn to these uh, positive possibilities as opposed to the negative one and that's what he's doing right there is that he's drawing that contrast with the you know sort of the uh come to motivation of you know peace and prosperity um and then coupled with the away from motivation 
of you know this war hostility um, and these investigations. Yeah, and you mentioned Nancy Pelosi's face, and you know the other thing that you can notice in the faces are all of the Republicans standing up and clapping, and they're laughing, yeah. and they know they know that he just said something absolutely ridiculous. Okay, none of them really believe it, but they will support it. And they'll support it because it, of course, helps, you know, the policies that they're uh, they're doing. Um, But, yeah, this was just very outright, very direct, Um, you know, listening again to exactly what he said. He said an economic miracle is taking place. Okay, yeah. Wow. And, And again, he just built up all these statistics of the economy. Hey, here's what's happening. Here's what's happening. Here's what's happening. But the only thing the only thing that can stop it are. Foolish wars, politics, he says, or ridiculous partisan investigations. He's, of course, talking about, you know, investigating him for his tax returns and stuff like that. Um, And it's just funny because, you know, is he actually playing politics in this moment? Of course he is. Right. Um, You know, but just because when he says it and he points his finger, he's essentially saying, hey, all of you that are doing that, if the economy goes down, You're at fault. Now, this is inoculation again, right? We've talked about this. This sense of inoculating against objections. So now, while a lot of the beginning of his speech follows along this framework here with a lot of alliteration um, and a lot of uh, this sort of framing, he gets into the actual meat of his policies later on in his speech. So now we're going to turn your attention to this moment where he starts talking about China and our trade policies. And you can sort of hear exactly how he's going to start talking about his specific policies. And again, he uses a lot of imagery and a lot of um, sort of the way he emphasizes his words. So pay close attention to that. But I don't blame China for taking advantage of us. I blame our leaders and representatives for allowing this travesty to happen. I have great respect for President Xi, and we are now working on a new trade deal with China. But it must include real structural change to end unfair trade practices, reduce our chronic trade deficit, and protect American jobs. Another historic trade blunder was the catastrophe known as NAFTA. I have met the men and women of Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Indiana, New Hampshire, and many other states whose dreams were shattered by the signing of NAFTA. For years, politicians promised them they would renegotiate for a better deal. But no one ever tried until now. Our new U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, the USMCA, will replace NAFTA and deliver for American workers like they haven't had delivered to for a long time. I hope you can pass the USMCA into law so that we can bring back our manufacturing jobs in even greater numbers expand American agriculture, 
protect intellectual property and ensure that more cars are proudly stamped with our four beautiful words. Made in the USA. So what's most fascinating to me about this part of Trump's speech, there's a really, uh, there's a really evocative moment. Listen to the way that he emphasizes specific words. And you'll notice there's a little bit of a subliminal subtext to him. I don't know if this is intentional or not, but it's really fascinating. So he starts talking towards the end of that clip there. He says, um, he talks about how things are going to be delivered for American workers and, you know, all these things are going to change now. He emphasizes now. And then he, in his next sentence, talks about how uh, the American workers are going to, you know, their standard of living is going to improve. He emphasizes American workers. And then shortly after that, he says, a long time for a long time. So if you string those words together where he stopped to emphasize each one of them, now deliver for American workers a long time. Um, And so it's one of those, I don't know, it's, it's, I don't know if it was intentional or if he's been coached or practiced or his speechwriters specifically put this subtext in there, but it's a little bit of subliminal messaging in there. Yeah, bolded them on on the page. Uh, you know, there is a precedent for doing things like that, you know, in hypnosis that they call this tonal marking. And it's the idea that you can mark out certain words in a sentence in a way to suggest different ideas. Um to a person even that isn't registered on a conscious level, but that their unconscious mind can take in. Um, so yeah, this this definitely you know can be done, and I it, it would be interesting to note it to note what does his sheet or his uh, teleprompter actually say about this, and you know how is he how is he doing it? Um, it could be that in his mind he's just emphasizing that, and so he he puts it together you know that way. Um, so a couple of things, you know, I notice here, you know, within this, you know, he says he has great respect for the Chinese president, but any trade deal must include this and this and this. And so notice how he does this very soft and then hard kind of thing. I'm very nice guy because I have great respect for him, but this is how it has to be. It must be this way. And in doing this, he actually fulfills both of his priorities, which is that he doesn't alienate you know, the president, he doesn't, you know, um, make the Chinese president mad. He doesn't continue with his image of being someone who makes presidents mad, you know, which is probably a good thing for him. But then he also appears to be very tough on these particular issues. And so he doesn't need to compromise with that. And so I think that's probably pretty intentional in terms of a style in putting that all together so that he is able to get both positives and avoids how he's been framed, you know, up until this moment. And that's something throughout this this whole speech that he has been trying to do. You see that with Trump's recent speeches. He's trying to reform his image a little bit. He's trying to get himself into a different way of thinking 
and to be seen by the voters in a slightly different way. His base is always going to be his base, but he's trying to make it so that people can't pin things on him quite as easily as they did before um, by talking in this way. And, you know, there's this great uh, sentence he says there at the beginning, you know. But I don't blame China for taking advantage of us. I blame our leaders and representatives for allowing this travesty to happen. What do you make of that, Alex? Yeah, this is a really big callback to his campaign speeches. Um, Those of you who might have followed him on the campaign trail knows that he uses this trope where he talked about how he was, you know, he's a businessman and he knows how to take advantage of people, you know, and he's like, I don't mind, you know, that China or all these other countries, you know, I don't blame them for taking advantage of us. I blame our leaders for being stupid. We should be taking advantage (laughs) of them. And it's sort of, it's a window into his mindset of, you know, uh, we should be taking advantage of the vulnerable or taking advantage of the vulnerable or the stupid or whatever is a good thing and something to be desired Mm -hmm. when it's on your side. And I think that that's, I mean, that's a legitimate point of view. And it's something that I think that a lot of Republicans can probably side with, with, you know, free markets and fair trade and and whatever it is like, you know, uh, winner takes all. Um, Why don't we have somebody smart um, and clever on our side fighting for us? Um, But, you know, that's really where he's um, able to reframe and flip the discussion instead of, you know, China being the enemy, the enemy in the situation, your anger as a disenfranchised worker should be at our American politicians. And of course, he's not a politician or he's not a part of this. All this happened before him. Right. All of that anger toward China should be redirected at your politicians. Yeah. And it does give you some insight into his worldview. He views the world as a zero sum game. He views it as a as a winner or a loser. And the people who are the winners are the winners and the people who are the losers simply are the losers. And so what he's saying is right now we're the losers and China is the winner. And the reason for that is NAFTA. Right. NAFTA is what is what does it, you know, and the catastrophe and, known as NAFTA. Right. And anything else that he doesn't like. Right. Here's here's why we are being taken advantage of. And I think that if you delve a little bit deeper into a personality style such as that of President Trump, that kind of I always have to be the leader. I always have to be the boss. I need to be in charge always. Actually, that personality style is someone who at their core feels very vulnerable okay they feel very vulnerable and in fact the more vulnerable they feel the more they have to project this outward image of being big and huge and strong okay so it looks like oh my gosh look at this guy like he just yes he's strong even in the toughest moments but that's actually where he's feeling inside of him you know the weakest so i you know i think that's that's what you're what you're seeing going on there you know at a personality level All right, so in this next part, we're going to go ahead and change gears, and we're going to be talking about the response to the State of the Union by Stacey Abrams. And if you remember, Stacey Abrams, you know, ran for the the governor of Georgia, and she ultimately lost that race. Um, But she became pretty famous, you know, nationwide with Democrats, and so that's why she's been selected to give this speech. Now, in the beginning here, in the first clip of her speech, she's really talking about a story, and this is 
building up a story arc that we've oftentimes talked about. Different politicians will do this. And there's multiple ways in which she's doing this in particular that just make it so much more effective. And um, it's kind of similar to what she she did in our uh, episode that we did on Oprah's speech, which uh, was also in an earlier episode. So let's go ahead and take a listen to the response. Growing up, my family went back and forth between lower middle class and working class. Yet even when they came home weary and bone tired, my parents found a way to show us all who we could be. My librarian mother taught us to love learning. My father, a shipyard worker, put in overtime and extra shifts, and they made sure we volunteered to help others. Later, they both became United Methodist ministers, an expression of the faith that guides us. These were our family values, faith, service, education, and responsibility. Now, we only had one car, so sometimes my dad had to hitchhike and walk long stretches during the 30-mile trip home from the shipyards. One rainy night, my mom got worried. We piled in the car and went out looking for him, and we eventually found my dad making his way along the road, soaked and shivering in his shirt sleeves. When he got in the car, my mom asked if he'd left his coat at work. He explained that he'd given it to a homeless man he'd met on the highway. When we asked why he'd given away his only jacket, my dad turned to us and said, I knew when I left that man he'd still be alone, but I could give him my coat because I knew you were coming for me. Our power and strength as Americans lives in our hard work and our belief in more. My family understood firsthand that while success is not guaranteed, we live in a nation where opportunity is possible. But we do not succeed alone. Yeah, so we're back to Stacey Abrams again, and she is just a master storyteller. What we see here is her, you know, doing that imagery, going back to her father and her childhood, and uh, really just uh, puts you in the place of him, you know, walking home from the shipyards, and it's raining, and he's got a coat, and he's trying to help, you know, another person, even when he himself needs help. Um, that all goes back to, you know, a lot of what we talked about in the Oprah episode um, and uh, and even Obama as well. Obama was, again, a master storyteller. Um, and it's fascinating the way that she's able to weave us uh, the narrative into that story and, uh, you know, really deliver a message without making it feel as though she's preaching to us. Yeah. And. A lot of times when people are telling this type of story, they will do it in the middle of a speech. She actually starts out her speech, you know, this way. So it's clear that this story is meant to be the bedrock that some other ideas are resting upon. And so the story of her family, she's creating a sense of rapport. She's creating this common experience. She's saying, I'm like you. I'm working class. I am having this type of experience. We only had one car. Um, she she's saying, "Hey, I'm different from all the other ones who were, you know, born with a glass spoon in their mouth, and or the silver spoon in their mouth." And the story arc that is being displayed by her, you know, is also painting in her a picture of what the voters are going to be voting 
before. So they might have just heard from her. I mean, yes, you know, she was a little bit famous across the country with Democrats, but perhaps moderate voters or Republican voters might not even have heard of her before. You know, who is this person? But what they know from the very beginning from listening to this is that she has a history which is rich in values, and these are American values that we like to cherish and really, you know, lean on. And there's a moral to her story, right? She, there's a moral which is, I'm coming for you, and that's the repeated point. So she says, these are our family values, and that sets up the idea that there are also values for the country. Now, again, I want you to listen back to Oprah's speech, you know, which was in a previous episode that we did. And in Oprah's speech, Oprah uses a very, very similar technique in storytelling as Stacey Abrams uh, is doing here. And it's actually amazing how how close together they are. Um, of course, Oprah's speech is not about Stacey's family, but you'll notice a lot of the same you know type of techniques. And because Stacy has set this foundation up in this way, now, of course, from this moment onward, she's going to be able to refer to that point. I am coming for you. Every time she talks to her, talks about her dad, she's not talking about just any dad. She's talking about the dad who gave away his only jacket. She's talking about that dad. And so we realize that when she talks about her family, she's talking about something very concrete, very real that we can step into and we can actually you know, see ourselves in that situation. That's the power of a good story. And so in this next clip, we'll see her, you know, sort of taking that theme of I'm coming for you and broadening it out. So now she's going to be talking about, you know, we are coming for America. My reason for running was simple. I love our country and its promise of opportunity for all. And I stand here tonight because I hold fast to my father's credo. Together, we are coming for America, for a better America. Just a few weeks ago, I joined volunteers to distribute meals to furloughed federal workers. They waited in line for a box of food and a sliver of hope since they hadn't received paychecks in weeks. Making livelihoods of our federal workers a pawn for political games is a disgrace. The shutdown was a stunt, engineered by the President of the United States, one that defied every tenet of fairness and abandoned not just our people, but our values. For seven years, I led the Democratic Party in the Georgia House of Representatives. I didn't always agree with the Republican speaker or governor, but I understood that our constituents didn't care about our political parties, they cared about their lives. So when we had to negotiate criminal justice reform or transportation or foster care improvements, the leaders of our state didn't shut down. We came together and we kept our word. It should be no different in our nation's capital. So in this second part of her speech, she's talking about those themes of an in-group, group unity and cohesiveness. So we're coming together for America for a better America. Again, better in what way? What, what exactly does that mean? And she starts talking about the shutdown. Okay, you know, here's, and again, this is pretty soon after she has given us this whole story about her dad and the jacket and the one car and, you know, all of that. And she says, well, I was with furloughed federal workers and all they wanted, giving them a box of food 
and a sliver of hope. <laughs> you know, I, I love this, this, this type of languaging because we expect her to say a sliver of something else, right? Um, but it's, it's a bit of hope, right? Uh, that's, that's there. And what she's saying here is that the president's values are not in alignment with her family values. Those are the ones that her dad taught her, right? And she is really attacking the shutdown. And it's really, you know, it's interesting because she goes from the story of her dad and then she goes into the shutdown. What is it exactly that she's implying here? And she says part of it, but there's a lot more in here that's, that's really implication. So she's implying here that Donald Trump is not being fair. So let's hear her words, right? The shutdown was a stunt that defied every tenet of fairness and abandoned not just our people, but our values. So she's saying, hey, this is not fair. You're playing with people's lives just for a stunt. You know, and it's not just people, but it's values, not about parties, but about people's lives. And she goes back to this thing of keeping your word. Keeping your word. See, that's a value. That's back to referencing her dad's values. We kept our word in the Georgia House of Representatives. It should be no different in the nation's capital. But is she just talking about Georgia or is she talking about something much, much more? Is she perhaps talking about the promise that federal workers gave to the federal government to work and to do their best jobs? And yet we're not keeping our word to them. This is some of the implication or the subtext that happens, you know, underneath what it is that she's actually saying. Yeah, she's playing right into a common belief value that, you know, Donald Trump is dishonest. She's playing into that idea that, you know, uh, the government should pay its debts and they broke that promise. And, you know, American workers are feeling betrayed and she's really playing it up and in a masterful way where she does it through the story about her family and, uh, you know, broadens that perspective out to what the government should be doing as well. So really fascinating how she manages to weave that in there. Yeah. And so this is a key technique is taking something from a story or taking one little idea and then broadening out all of the different possibilities or, hey, you have this over here. How about applying it over here? But of course, we can run into many um, fallacies of argument, right, by uh, doing that, by taking something over here and then making it apply over here. But the spe- since the speech is designed to be persuasive and since she's talking to people who are already bought in, a lot of them, to her ideas, she doesn't need to be quite as careful about exactly whether what she's saying is logically true or not. She just has to make it about values. And if it's about values, then are we talking about policy? No. Can you disagree with a value like hard work and keeping your word? Really hard to do that. You would sound like not a very good person if you disagreed with that value. And so she uses the value then to prop up to say, hey, here's the value. You're not in alignment with that value. And so you are a person who is doing something different from what I was taught. You know, I I want you to succeed, but this is not the way in which it, it needs to be done. So on this next clip, you'll hear a lot of the ways that she um, uses omissions to uh, make her point. So you'll notice as you listen to each thing, ask yourself, what is she really saying here? What does this actually mean? Because there's a lot that she just leaves out and leaves to your imagination to sort of fill in the blank. 
Children deserve an excellent education from cradle to career. We owe them safe schools and the highest standards, regardless of zip code. Yet this White House responds timidly while first graders practice active shooter drills and the price of higher education grows ever steeper. From now on, our leaders must be willing to tackle gun safety measures and face the crippling effect of educational loans to support educators and invest what is necessary to unleash the power of America's greatest minds. In Georgia and around the country, people are striving for a middle class where a salary truly equals economic security. But instead, families' hopes are being crushed by Republican leadership that ignores real life or just doesn't understand it. Under the current administration, far too many hardworking Americans are falling behind, living paycheck to paycheck, most without labor unions to protect them from even worse harm. The Republican tax bill rigged the system against working people. Rather than bringing back jobs, plants are closing, layoffs are looming, and wages struggle to keep pace with the actual cost of living. Wow. And here we hear a take on the economy that could not be any different from Trump's take on this. And there's so many persuasive devices in this to break down. You know, where, where can we even begin in this? It's, it's just, just filled with it in this clip. Yeah, she's really speaking to the problems that Americans are facing by blaming the government. Where, as Trump was sort of blaming, you know, the uh, terrible trade deals and, you know, China's policies and all of this. She's taking it to, you know, the degradation of our unions and our schools and, you know, economic insecurity uh, you know, caused by uh, lack of social safety net. And those are important. And that's one of the ways that she's able to reframe this from what Donald Trump was talking about to an entirely different debate. And then within that, she's able to uh, present her solution later on in her speech but um, this sort of lays that foundation of here are all the problems and where they all came from. Um, and Donald Trump is a part of that, is sort of that, that uh, subtext to the entire thing. And we have here some really interesting things she's doing with language, you know, from cradle to career. I liked that one. It's <laughs> like, what does that mean? Cradle to career? Uh, I think they can have some years in between there. Um, we want to unleash the power of America's greatest minds. Well, what does that mean exactly? We want to unleash the power. It's as though there's this power there that's not being utilized. And I would suggest that's actually an unproven claim, right? There, there's this power inside of the minds that's just not being, you know, tapped into, you know, is there really, is that really true? Or is, is that, you know, just some, a, a fancy way of saying something? Um, and here is, Here's something she says, right? Instead, families' hopes are being crushed by Republican leadership that ignores real life or just doesn't understand it. So hopes are crushed by leadership. You know, hope is an intangible thing. So you have an intangible being crushed, which is a tangible action, by tangible people. You have an intangible that's being affected by a tangible. How exactly does that work? Well, it only works in the realm of language and rhetorical devices. So families' hopes are being crushed. You know, how specifically are their hopes being crushed? You know, what 
what what exactly are we talking about here and how does the leadership cause the hopes to be crushed it's all tied together in this bundle that really to unpack it we would have to you know know exactly what abrams is referring to there but we can't until she goes into some specific example later on or later in the campaign trail or someone reads an article about how unfair the world is and then they go look here's how they're being crushed but they don't do it in that way they just go oh that sounded good when she said it this seems to support that idea so i'm putting those two ideas together and now i form a belief system about the world that later influences how policy gets made because i'm going to vote a particular way based on policy this is how people put together ideas in their mind um and then she starts to talk about the economy so most people don't even have labor unions to protect them so she's implying here that a labor union is this base standard that no one can live without it's like well you just don't even have a labor union i mean that's how low you are um mm-hmm. and the way and, and if she can make it as a base standard which is you know again this progressive movement in the democratic party pushing the party further left so that the what used to be progressive ideals or the progressive policies are now actually being more mainstream um you know such that we just assume labor unions are just something that that has to has to be happening all right and so now we've heard her sort of foundation. We've heard her reasons for all of the problems in the world and all the problems in America. And now we get to the section of her speech where she presents the solution. We know bipartisanship could craft a 21st century immigration plan. But this administration chooses to cage children and tear families apart. Compassionate treatment at the border is not the same as open borders. President Reagan understood this. President Obama understood this. Americans understand this. And Democrats stand ready to effectively secure our ports and borders. But we must all embrace that from agriculture to healthcare to entrepreneurship, America is made stronger by the presence of immigrants, not walls. And so here she's presenting the fact that bipartisanship, which, by the way, Trump called for, technically, could craft a 21st century immigration plan that would solve our problems. Um, and in, in sort of uh, instead of keeping immigrants out, we could be letting them in, um, reframing Trump's argument that immigrants equal problems and disaster and uh, all the horrible things that are happening to you and your families, um, she's saying that, no, 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 immigrants are building society, and and this is part of the solution. Uh, The only problem is is that she's stating this without necessarily a foundation. She sort of starts with all the problems and presents this as the solution. Well, she's skipping a lot of steps there with exactly how that happens. Yeah, you do this and then dot, 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 and then profit, right? That's how, that's how it oftentimes happens. So what, what she's uh, going into here, you know, this is what Trump also referred to, is she said, you know, you could craft a, you could craft a 21st century immigration plan. And what she's implying there is that Trump's administration is outda- outdated, it's not sound, 
Um, this administration chooses to cage children and tear families apart. Very evocative language there. Um, it's strong language that people won't forget. You know, when we put something into a cage, that means that it's an animal or it's being treated as an animal. Tearing a family apart is pushing those empathy, those outrage type of buttons where people hear that, you know, hey, I don't want to be on the side who tears families apart. You know, I want to be on the kind side, the empathetic side. And she does this interesting thing here with uh, what's called the rule of three. And the rule of three states that when you state things in three pairs, that it's more persuasive. So she said compassionate treatment at the border is not the same as open borders. President Reagan understood this. Obama understood this. Americans understand this. That's the third. And Democrats stand ready to effectively secure our ports and borders. So that's pace, 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 lead. I've given you something that's true, true, true. Now I'm going to give you something that's a little bit plausible, but might not yet be true. So Reagan understood it. Obama understood it. Americans understand this. Democrats now stand ready to effectively secure it. Now that word effectively, of course, is very key because that's the Democratic talking point about, hey, we don't just want some ineffective wall. We want one that actually effectively um, uh, secures the ports and the borders. And she's making it bipartisan by talking about Reagan, who is you know the conservative hero, and talking about Obama, uh, who's the you know demo, the uh, liberal hero. And um, she she goes into that claim, you know, like Alex was referring to about America being stronger with the presence of immigrants. But again, according to whom, right? So Trump would say immigrants are weakening America. She's saying they're making it stronger. We've got this reframing thing that's that's going on here, you know, between the two of them. All right. So in this next part, right at the end of her speech, let's hear how she concludes it. And she's going to conclude it by going back to the beginning. She's going to conclude it by going back to her story. She's going to talk about the story and all of the elements, the foundations that happened there, not only in her personal story, no, because that's not what good storytellers do, is it? She's not only going to be talking about her personal story, she's going to be talking about the story of America. So let's listen to this part. America has stumbled time and again on its quest towards justice and equality. But with each generation, we have revisited our fundamental truths, and where we falter, we make amends. We fought Jim Crow with the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. Yet we continue to confront racism from our past and in our present, which is why we must hold everyone from the highest offices to our own families accountable for racist words and deeds and call racism what it is, wrong. America achieved a measure of reproductive justice in Roe v. Wade, but we must never forget it is immoral to allow politicians to harm women and families to advance a political agenda. We affirmed marriage equality, and yet the LGBTQ community remains under attack. So even as I am very disappointed by the president's approach to our problems, I still don't want him to fail. But we need him to tell the truth and to respect his duties and respect the extraordinary diversity that defines America. Our progress has always been found in the refuge, in the basic instinct of the American experiment, 
to do right by our people. And with a renewed commitment to social and economic justice, we will create a stronger America together. Because America wins by fighting for our shared values against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That is who we are. And when we do so, never wavering, the state of our union will always be strong. Thank you, and may God bless the United States of America. You know, I'd really like to comment here after listening to her speech that she is really effective at, at delivering a powerful speech. You'll notice just the way that she's able to effectively embody the words that she's presenting. Yep. She really, really uh, does what Obama did such a great job with. And we heard in the episode with Kamala Harris, the way that she's able to really jump into that place and make you feel the words that she's trying to say, both in her wording and her verbiage, but in her affect, in her body language and her face, she really you know puts on all the expressions. Yeah, it's almost as though she's not reading this from a prepared speech, and yet she is, but she's able to go into it at such an emotional level you know, in, in how she delivers it and how she feels every part of it that makes her, you know, much more effective. And by the way, I think that is, you know, while we're on the topic, I think that is a very effective um, method for anyone who is reading something prepared or someone who is just talking in a certain way is that you really need to step in and feel the things you're saying to actually change your emotional state you know, to go in to, to feel it differently. And that's what she's embodying here. She's going into it um, in that way. Now, what we hear from her in this end of this speech is she's talking to us about the different legislation that was passed. We had Jim Crow. We had Roe v. Wade. We had this. Here is what America has meant, and here is what it has, you know, done. And she says, even after Jim Crow, we continue to confront racism, which is why, dot, 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 we must hold people accountable. And who is she talking about holding accountable here? Because it, it <laughs> sounds, you know, general, but it actually sounds pretty specific. Is she talking about, you know, Trump and associates, you know, basically? You know, is she talking about Ralph Northam? I, I don't know. Who, who is she talking about here? Um, but she's saying that there are, it does sound like she's saying there's certain people that we need to hold accountable as if there are certain people who are still stuck in the Jim Crow age. Um, that's, that's, that's what I hear from it anyway. Um, and then, you know, she says, well, we need to, well, actually she says we need to hold from the highest offices to our own families accountable. Now, what does mm -hmm. that mean? <laughs> what is it? What exactly does that mean? Who's, who's family? And we need to protect against all threats, foreign and domestic. Same thing that Kamala Harris kind of did as well. That reference back to the uh, back to the Constitution, and uh, maybe it has something to do with Russia. She again is putting in that subtext there so that you get that you know she's talking about these great American values, but what she's really talking about is how Trump doesn't embody any of them. And then, if you might be getting sort of that idea from her, she sort of leans into it and actually comes out and explicitly acknowledges, and maybe this is some inoculation happening here, she says, you know, I 
disagree with Trump on X, Y, and Z and, you know, all of this, but I don't want him to fail. And, you know, she acknowledges that there are these disagreements, but then she reframes it and says, well, these are important disagreements, but I'm still on your side. I may have alienated you, perhaps, with all of the things that I said against somebody you might like, but I actually like him too. I'm actually on his side as well, and I'm actually on your side. So it's sort of regaining some of that, um, uh, some of that rapport in in sort of a, a very respectable way. Yeah, she does what Trump does with the Chinese president, which is that you know Trump is saying about the Chinese president, um, "Hey, I really like him, but here's what he has to do." And this is what Stacey Abrams is saying about Trump. Hey, I don't want him to fail, but he has to tell the truth. He has to have respect. And he in particular has to have respect for the diversity that makes up Americans. Well, you know, what is diversity, you know, a key word for? Is that only about different races and ethnicities and groups of people? Or is it also about a diversity of ideas? a diversity of different perspectives that perhaps could be weighted, you know, in the in the president's, you know, estimation in saying, hey, this is this is this is what we want. Um, overall, though, I think that her her response was very well crafted. You know, again, she's able to, to say it in such a, um, a smooth way. And I really like how she she built it up with the story, you know, uh, Trump, in contrast, I don't think would be able to pull off that long of a story and be able to link those things together. You know, Obama would be able to do it. And we've heard Obama do it um, in, in the episode where we talked about, you know, Obama being in, in uh, Disneyland, which is, you know, the thanks Obama episode. And um, so we have heard that, you know, uh, from him. Uh, but we hear it here from her, and I think that you know what she does here, she effectively reframes some of those major points, but without getting too much into the weeds. You know, I think with a response like this, there's a temptation to really just respond point by point with everything the president has said and say, well, that's not true, this is not true. Instead, she makes it thematic, which is what she should do. She chunks up, she goes into the values, she goes into what people actually want, which is an emotional leadership, um, not just one based on policy, but she does get into policy, but she leaves it general enough uh, to the point where people can fill in their own, uh, you know, their own aspects of that, you know, save things like we don't want people to be caged up and we don't want to tear families apart and, you know, all that kind of stuff. All right. I think that's about all the time we've got for today. Um, head on over to our website, subliminallycorrect.com, and if you go all the way to the right at the top, you'll see the link to our Patreon page. It's a very important button. Be sure to click it. Head on over. You can support us for as little as a cup of coffee a month, and that helps us get the show on the air, pay all the server costs, everything that brings the show to you each and uh, every other week. Um <laughs> That's right. Every episode, you know, we're coming here to you to deliver this, you know, type of content on Patreon. You know, we're continuing to add new content, exclusive content um, for those people who do, you know, help us out for the show. With that, we look forward to seeing you on the next episode.